0: this is a podcast from three triple 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio good morning everybody and welcome to another episode of A go go you are listening to three triple i i'm dr shane a big thank you to the team from radiotherapy for bringing us through until 11 we've got an hour of science for you now in the studio with me is dr ailey good morning
1: good morning dr shane
0: we've got some cool stuff happening today haven't we
1: absolutely going to talk about some very awesome stuff
0: yes we are uh we've got no guests we've kicked them all out yeah you gotta listen to listen to
2: me for half the show yeah, yeah, just, just, <laughs>
0: just the team so we'll, we'll be cool uh dr wistel good morning
2: Uh always a pleasure dr shane to be here chatting science on a sunday
0: With science nice day out too yeah it was um this unseasonable.
2: Mm,
1: is only it unseasonable? for unseasonable? Well, actually, last week was with the, yeah, the low twenties. I was very warm. Yeah, yeah but uh, get ready for this morning. evening though, because yeah. it's
2: going to start raining. Oh, it's a good thing, thing. we're going to talk about rain. Today? Yes, we are. Excellent. Yeah. Yep.
0: Doctor Ray, good
3: morning. Good morning, Doctor Shane. You well? Uh, I am. I am excited. I have spent the week using a huge piece of science, uh, Australian scientific infrastructure. Oh. Uh, I was. I was fortunate enough to be at the. Opal uh, <gasps> Nuclear Reactor doing neutron scattering all week cool. and what an amazing facility. Um, it's the type of thing that can really transform your work if you can get time on it. Mm. And uh, That's
2: the one that's up in Sydney, isn't it? It is not it thats
3: the one up in Sydney. And, and the other things that they, they do there that are really amazing beyond scientific research is they make a large fraction of the radioisotope pharmaceuticals for Australia and a great deal of the southern hemisphere. Uh, and in the world and they also and this is really cool i didn't realize this also uh you um one of the things you can do in a nuclear reactor is irradiate silicon ingots which are then sliced up to make silicon wafers for microprocessors to make them semiconductors they have to get doped with phosphorus and so that's one of the other things they also do on that site too Hmm. so really a really amazing facility um and uh and, and 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 so many different researchers use that place from to solve problems in in medicine science engineering materials it's, it's yeah. pretty exciting
0: it 's been around for a long time too
3: it has yeah. it has That's but fair. when you get beam time, you get it around the clock so we yeah, had seventy-two hours. Up.
2: Wow! A <laughs> little,
3: little <laughs> tired, even with a team of five. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you
1: there at three o'clock in the morning?
3: We were there at every time of the morning. Wow! Uh, For
2: seventy-two hours.
3: <laughs> well, we, we did take turns sleeping. Yeah, but, but that's you know.
2: amazing. That's like yeah. a science marathon. <clears throat> yeah. Times ten.
0: Yeah. Like, I remember. Uh, I remember years ago, someone said to me, "You know, what's it like? You know, being an, an astronomer? You know, because I started off in astrophysics in my first area, and I said to them, I said, well, I said, you know, the really cool work is done, believe it or not.'" when the sun's down (laughs) and so it was quite you know it's sort of be up at all 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 stages of the night that was like you you just do that you know and you you work out worry about sleep later because you don't get much time on these bits of equipment someone gives you two days it's sort of like well two days is 48 hours and i'm going to use 47 of them and i've got to go to the bathroom at some stage so yeah simple as that but um yeah Anyway, it's all fun. Uh, we're going to start off with some news, uh, Dr. Ailey. Do you want to
1: Absolutely. Kick it, yeah, yeah. kick it off. Yeah. So I've got a very funky little story here about <clears throat> finding out the colour of prehistoric animals. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, this question comes up a lot with my six-year-old. You're absolutely. And, and my little one, too. So, you know, dinosaurs and all that kind of stuff, big hit, right? You know, and you see pictures of them in... in Books and whatnot all the time, mm. but I mean, really, <laughs> we're, we're kind of just making up the colors.
3: Steven Spielberg didn't f- figure this out for Jurassic
0: Park, he made it up.
1: Well, yeah, some I, I yeah. kind of think, yeah, well, <laughs> can, I, I guess he,
0: he kind of went with what everyone expected they would look yeah, like. That's right, which was, yeah, I
1: want to see like vibrant purple ones, but, like a purple
0: T
3: Rex.
1: Yeah, that'd be amazing. But well, big see it red spots or something. I don't know. Yeah, you <laughs> could see, see it coming. coming. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, that would this be a
3: very skinny purple teeth. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, look, this one in particular. This story is not about dinosaurs, but it's about a very old mouse. So, uh, this old mouse is three million years old, and it's a very well preserved fossil. And basically, some people from the University of Manchester had a look at it under. Um, an x-ray, x-ray X-ray spectroscopy it's called and so they had a look at um the makeup of some of the the kind of chemicals that were in this fossil and what they found was that um they could use the trace metals to work out kind of um the the tone of its of its fur color of mm. the of the the fur well it's like a feather like fur like thing they're not quite sure whether it's feathers or furs. fur so um but it was red so they found that it had these kind of red, red pigments on its back and on its side. Um, and they've also found this, I don't know if it's the same team actually, but they have, have also found this for some of the armoured dinosaurs as well. And so what they look for um, are these these little things called, uh, hang on, I've got to get the word right, uh, melanosomes, I think, or like melatonin kind of yeah. stuff, I think. Yep. You know? But the point is that they can they can have a look at the traces in the fossils and find out the colour associated with those so mm. that's that's pretty cool mm. um so yeah this little mouse had red patches on it
0: yeah. and there's got to is- be a, a, a level of detail there they'd go into to make sure that it's not what yep. it died in well, you yeah, know, and yeah. or, or that, you know, it was splated with blood or something right before it died. Yeah, you, know, you mm-hmm. have to especially red, you know, mm. like there's a lot of pigments that it yeah. just you yeah. know, well, clays. And to be so
1: fair, forth. it was a brownie red. Yeah, so yeah. it wasn't yeah. like, you know, this vivid fire so not purple. red or no. Yeah. no not purple
3: unfortunately. Just, yeah. Where was the was the mouse actually from the Manchester area that was no, no
1: no 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 no. Not not that I'm aware of it, it doesn't actually say in the article that mm-hmm. I right, I had a look at. En- but
3: Manchester United
1: would No, I don't think it was. It was just researchers from the university.
0: Of it's interesting so. to me. I don't know how much of this has been done, but to me, colour in nature is all dependent on the predator-the-prey relationship. Mm. So there's no reason for dinosaurs, for example, to be coloured. Mm unless they or their prey yep. have vision that's capable of seeing See yeah. So right. to me, I, I don't know how much has been written up on that, but that's that's the core, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if that's not there, mm-hmm. then you wouldn't evolve color. Mm-hmm. There's well, no reason to evolve
3: color. Well, it's not just predator prey because fish are colorful also for mating.
0: Uh, yeah, well... Pre the yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, but any, anything oh, okay, rub- okay. rub- yeah, yeah. no, generally, right. yeah, 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 death yeah. and sex. That's yeah. pretty much yeah. it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, but it's 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 all about that. It's it's never about they just look pretty. It's yeah. it's like it's it's got to be about something to do with the biological mm. sort of function propagation, over, yeah. function over form.
2: Yeah, yeah. No yeah. yeah.
0: So, I but I, so. I think
1: it's really cool that they can yeah. use you know elements to work this out. Like these guys oh, use yeah. zinc and sulfur molecules yeah. to map out on the body. where these pigments were and i think and it's like it wasn't all over it was just you know a patch on its back and patch on its sides i
0: think that's it tells you a a, lot more
1: about the creature itself yeah it's a
0: shame i mean you know when you think about it the um the the required materials especially of dinosaurs Mm. just don't last that long yeah so you know you want something that's 150 million years old to soft tissue to still be around to give you color
3: Sorry, no, people.
1: but You're gonna just going to get the bone. We, we only get three million year old mice. That's it. <laughs> By the
0: yeah.
3: way, you said three million year old mouse, but you said feather versus fur. Like, well, is this yeah. a? They said it, it's a bit different than the mouse of today.
1: Yeah. Well, they they said it was a, a feather. It was fur, but it was like a very feathery, fine. Oh,
0: it's a flying mouse. Yeah, <laughs> I'm okay with that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they 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 likened it more to like feathers in, uh, in its nature, the fibrous nature. Yeah, the fibrous nature. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it was just a very fine, which cool. is kind of cool.
0: I'll keep searching. You'll find that, people. Once. Yeah, later. I will. The purple one
2: with red spots, that's what I want.
0: Dr Crystal
2: Uh, Look Dr Shane You know Some people You know Have I think Lie awake in in bed at night Thinking about the big problems Of the world And for some people You know The problems that keep them awake at night Are things like Climate change Or indigenous reconciliation But for me The thing that really keeps me awake at night Is antibiotic resistance Like (laughs) It is something that terrifies me The fact that there is You know That there are bacteria out there That are so resistant to antibiotics That there's nothing Going to kill them And you know So for me I'm really fascinated by stories that, That look at how antibiotic resistance happens. And this week, um, uh, some research from the University of Lyon in um, France came out in the journal Science, which was really looking at how to visualise in real time how bacteria become resistant to antibiotics at a cellular level so you know we've known for some time that bacteria can actually transfer the ability to become resistant to antibiotics to each other by exchanging bits of dna so one bacteria can pass a that like mm. it's like passing a secret message and go Psst, hey i know how to beat tetracycline. do you want it and then the other one goes yeah thanks and so they pass this little kind of pl- piece of dna called a plasmid from one to the other and then you know once they have that um they can then you know become resistant antibiotics but Mm. what these researchers have done is set up a real-time microscopy technique to actually see that happen in real time and and work out well how long does it actually take because once you've got the piece of DNA, there's actually several steps involved to becoming resistant. So they were looking at um, how he does bacteria share their genetic information, become resistant to the antibiotic tetracycline. And so, you know, this single strand of DNA gets passed over. They have to make it into a double-stranded DNA. And DNA itself doesn't make you resistant because DNA is just a code. It's a set of mm. instructions mm. on how to make a protein. And it's the protein that actually does the job of pumping antibiotic back out of the bacterial cell. So the antibiotic, you know, when the tetracycline comes into the bacteria, the antibiotic have a pump in its membrane that can sort of shunt it back out again really fast. So, you know, so the antibiotic can't kill them because they just chuck it back out the window, basically. And so it's like, well, how fast does this happen? And so they set up their microscopes and they had a look and they said, well, probably takes about one or two hours, which, you know, sounds quick, but if you think about the, ba- the life of a bacteria, yeah, you know, they can divide. Many times. Many times in that time. So it's actually, you know, a relatively long process and it's on the, on the scale of a bacteria time frame. But, um... So then they wanted to see, well, can this still happen? Um, what happens when we add um, the antibiotic back into the experiment? And so they, they set up this visualisation technique where they looked at, you know, how the DNA was passed across and, you know, once the, bacter- once the bacteria had the DNA, it will like, turn red and then once it expressed a protein, it would turn green. And so then, you know, they said, well, what happens if we add the antibiotic into the mix? And you would think that, well, the job of the antibiotic is actually to stop proteins being made. So, you know, they were expecting that when they added the tetracycline antibiotic in, that yes they could transfer the dna across to the bacteria but they wouldn't be able to make the protein but when they did the experiment they still turned green and they still saw antibiotic resistance in the presence of the antibiotic Mm. and it's one of those things where the researchers were like. we had a you know we had a hard time convincing ourselves it was actually happening and it's one of those things when you do it in the lab and you think "Mm, that's weird maybe the tetracycline's gone off we'll order some new stuff or maybe this didn't work or and you know you kind of go through the whole thing in trouble you almost gaslight yourself in the lab sometimes you think well that can't be right well that can't be right and you sort of do this experiment over and over again but they saw sure enough you know in the presence of the antibiotic the bacteria was still becoming resistant and like well how is this happening and it turns out that Bacteria have got like a little pump that sit, it sits in their cell membrane that can sort of get rid of and shunt out tiny bits of tetracycline antibiotic. Not enough for them to come resistant, but enough to buy them time. And so the tetracycline is coming into the bacteria and they're using this pump which is um, named uh, acr tol oh, yeah. c catchy, <clears throat> um, to sort of pump the uh, antibiotic out at a low level, which buys them enough time to transcribe the DNA into the protein to actually pump all of the tetracycline out and become resistant which you know opens up this whole new idea of co- different combinations for kind of targeting drug resistance but it's also quite terrifying in you know in the words of the researchers it's better news for the bacteria than for human health and <laughs> <laughs> so while i find this research fascinating i also do find it slightly terrifying yeah. I one thing
0: you- one thing that bothers me of course is the fact that um bacteria versus us they're evolving quicker
2: Oh, absolutely! They Problem can
0: line, They're evolving quicker. Absolutely, yeah. as and smart as we are. Yeah. But you,
1: you talked about you know now that they know this process, could they shut down that pump somehow? That little pump. Yes, yeah, I mean, so is that a possibility? So
2: that's the new kind of hope. Is like, well, maybe we could offer combination antibiotics now that actually mm. tug because this 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 minor pump um, is actually present in quite a lot of bacteria, mm. um, and so it might be you looking actually have to do different combinations to kind of really knock out this yeah. this resistance. It's actually really interesting. I I was kind of thinking. I wonder if someone's written like a dystopian kind of novel in the post-antibiotic world like what, what would that look like for us as a species and i'm still trying to find any suggestions if anyone's got a novel or <laughs> you know um that they've written or have, when it wants an idea i think that looking at some kind of you know post uh, post antibiotic resistance world would be a fascinating way to kind of explore what that means for us as a society to not mm-hmm. have antibiotics yeah
0: maybe start off with the andromeda strain mm-hmm. i think that was a good start back and, in the uh, 70s, 60s 70s Yeah, Yeah, and moving to 70% ethanol to disinfect (laughs) it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: All right, uh, Dr. Ray, where do you go? Dr. Shane, I have a story about bilbies. Um, It's actually about um, uh, feral predators. And so uh, I I looked at, well, I I found the statistic that about three dozen Australian mammal species have become extinct since the colonization of Australia. And part of that a lot is, is feral animals, cats, foxes. Uh, and while well we have fences and we have uh, any predator strategies and cullings, that sometimes is slowing the progress of the stress on existing populations of native animals. It's not necessarily, it's slowing down a rather depressing endpoint. So um, there's a, a set of researchers that's been working for quite a while, led by Kate Mosby at UNSW actually, but this made international news, Uh, on on strategies, to other ways to try to help native animals deal with with predators. And one of them is about introduction and exposure. You could almost think training them as a way to help those animals over time periods long enough for it to be passed generationally to actually deal with predators. And and this is a study that came out last week in the... um, Excuse me, Journal of Applied Ecology, where it, it was this two-year study where they took um there's there's actually this really cool reserve called the um arid recovery reserve in South Australia that's been established by Mosby and, and an ecologist named John Reed that's been used for quite for studies for about mm, at least 10, 15 years now, where it's this area where they they gated it off. Um it's 123 Square kilometers, but they only used a smaller part of it where they've cleared out predators from different sections and it's got paddocks and it's posted and what they did here was they they took um, uh, a large number of bilbies and put them in two different paddocks. And in one paddock, there were no feral cats. In the other paddock, there was a low number of feral cats. So they fenced in a lot of bilbies with a few predators, not too many. and, and, and looked over two years and looked at how the bilbies progressed over time and how did they respond to a predator level that caused them to know they were predators but not necessarily wipe out their population, which isn't always the ratio in the wild. There's enough feral cats, depending on the region.
2: Is this like exposure therapy? Like? Yeah, yeah. They,
3: they, yeah it's yeah. interesting that they called the losses a training cost. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so what they found is in the behavior of the bilbies is they became much more wary. They spent much less time out in the open. They they use their burrows more effectively, um, and uh, the introduction periods can always be a little dangerous getting used to things, but also um, just getting used to putting a bunch of bilbies in a new area. They all have their own runs, and so there's a little bit of pecking orders with the bilbies, too. When you have predators there, that pecking order stuff goes away. A lot of it is, we're going to figure out, that, that gets figured out faster.
2: It's like we've got bigger problems to worry about here, it, people.
3: It <laughs> is, and, and one of the surprising <laughs> things they found in the bilbies with the predators <clears throat> was, that um, they shared burrows, which is not common in bilbies. Like they were way more open to two people going, in, two bilbies going to one burrow because that was the one that was nearby, and that that didn't happen in the naive to predators. And so then what they did was, is then they took um, a selection of bilbies from both and put them in a paddock with a reasonable number of feral cats. I think it was ten or fifteen for forty days and tracked to see how the two species, the, the the two ones, the naive to predators and the experienced bilbies managed against an actual reasonably sized population of feral cats and the naive ones didn't fare well and they lost 71 percent mm. of them in in the first week oh. whereas um the, ni- the 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 ones that were acclimated and, and remember this is two years so this is long enough that you have young and pass on learned learned behaviors uh only a third of them didn't make it for the first 40 days uh, and, and so the w- it's a shorter study, and you wonder, well, why didn't they observe them for longer? Apparently, it's hard to keep a radio tracker on a bilby. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So that's why it was a 40-day study. But, uh, but it, and, and so they're looking at, at a larger-scale study. This was fun with an ARC linkage. There's a, um, One of the conservation groups in Melbourne is interested in exploring this, but... This is, this is starting to look at other strategies to try to help our native animals survive. And and it, it doesn't work for all of them. Bilbies are a good candidate species because they're always around feral cats, so this type of learned behavior can be reinforced, whereas predator uh, species that only run into predators occasionally would struggle with this, and some of the smaller mm-hmm. species were. And there's also the worry is... It, is the training cost as they put it the losses before you ex- when you expose them mm-hmm. if they're too great? There's they have other ideas about maybe taking a, a smaller population and then trying to train that and then have that.
1: Well, and, do they do they teach each other? I mean, I know they were two separate populations, but that's kind of the next obvious yeah. question, isn't it? If you put a group of those trained bilbies... With non-trained bilbies, mm. well, th- that's what. Oh yeah, do
2: they, can t- they teach each other? Can they transfer <laughs> res- yeah, knowledge? And, yeah, and, and, exactly. And, and
3: so that's what one of their their future strategies. They said, well, you know, to try to limit that training cost, could you train one population and then have that come mm. across? Uh, they don't probably have the the direct proof on bilbies mm. yet, but I think that's one of the things they want to do. Um, but it, it, you know, it's an interesting thing. I mean, we've heard a lot of creative ways to deal with 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 feral animals. We've seen apex predator partnering, where we have dogs protecting. Different mammals. We tried that. There was that big thing with quals in, in Victoria, or South Australia, with with dogs, and we've all seen the movie about the dogs and the penguins. But so you know, we've got to come up with other strategies and and, and test other ideas because we aren't necessarily going to arrest all of the the feral predators, and, and we're going to have more losses. So it, it was interesting mm-hmm. to see. Other other ways so, to go. So about basically, doing this.
2: you're talking about training the bilby resistance.
3: Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 yeah.
0: I was so trying to just train it, one one now. super bilby that goes out <laughs> well, and trains all the others. Well,
3: well, the other thing is, what we're really trying to do is is get them to evolve behaviors because they haven't mm. evolved with that predator. And yeah. and it, it, while we say we're preserving our our, our native species, there is I don't know, and this is speculative. We're kind of changing them a little. We're helping them evolve new mm. parameters. They did an earlier study that's been published uh, on Batongs where. After eighteen months of not quite this this type of exposure, the batongs had bigger hind feet like like and they weren 't sure, but they speculated that those were better at fighting or running so mm. you know when you start to live with predators, things change and yeah uh, and, and, and we 've seen it in other places we haven 't seen the introduction with feral things, but the removal of predators has terrible impacts as well uh, but so we 're almost trying to to get them to evolve new behaviors and it's a challenge to do that quickly.
0: Mm. Interesting stuff. Well, uh, I want to just quickly mention something simply because there's, a, there's a, a bit of data in here which I find is a little mind-blowing. But um, one of the things that you know, we, we do generally in chemical processing, in materials research and so forth is we, we will put sound into fluids to do certain jobs. And, you know, this can change the rate of chemical reactions. It can do all sorts of things. And there's a question around, you know, how much sound can you put into a specific area? And there's this um, group from the Department of Energy in in the US that have been using their X-ray accelerator. So this is basically... Think of it as an X-ray laser, so uh, like a normal laser, but this one is a laser for X-rays, so it can produce incredibly high-intensity um, laser. So laser instead bench. of taking an X-ray of you, it would burn a hole in you. Yeah, it would <laughs> burn a hole in you real quick. You'd just see your shadow on the wall. Oh. Um, anyway, what they've done is they've managed to, uh, in a certain way, um, point this, this sort of X-ray laser into a fluid and... and create essentially the loudest sound ever recorded in a fluid now what you've got to remember here is that when you put energy into into water um, if you put too much in the wrong way you'll actually break the water apart you'll destroy the water and so you can no longer sort of count that as you know oh, I made a sound in water because the water's essentially go gone right you, you create micro bubbles in it and you so essentially explode the water out so the question is how far can you go before that actually happens and this group have actually managed to do it up to a, a sound pressure of 270 decibels, which is, you know, is deafening sound.
3: It's like that make a whale deafening instant, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah,
0: it would make a whale deafening instant. It would absolutely destroy us. But the best way to think of it is it's the equivalent of putting the entire energy use of a city in this instant into a, into a cubic metre of water. Wow. So it's like this massive amount of energy into this very, very small space. Um, But the way in which they've done it is such that the water doesn't break apart. And they're just below, they think, the threshold of where that happens. So they actually think this is probably the loudest sound you could actually produce in this volume of water before you know, things start to break apart. So it's, it's kind of interesting because it means if you can produce that amount of energy in there, you can do some funky sort of chemical reactions so, and things that you yeah. otherwise wouldn't be able to do.
3: So if you look at ultrasound chemistry, which is is, is when you put sound into water to create chemistry, that, that creates a pro- effectively a, a cavitation process where mm. it causes bubbles to collapse. When done tuned right, that collapse happens for these little local bubbles. You get temperatures as hot as the sun. Yeah,
0: sono luminescence. So, yeah, and, and,
3: yeah, and so what's the implication for something like this? Because this is way more energy than ultrasound mm-hmm. chemists use.
0: Yeah. It, so so the difference is here, of course, is you could, you do it over large volumes. So that's oh, that's, that's a the big key. Deal. So so with with chemistry, it's it's like Tricky. little micro bubbles yeah. and they're very small bubbles, and they 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 jump up and they collapse and they jump up and collapse, and every time they do, they they put out light and a lot mm-hmm. of energy. And you can get, as you say, temperatures similar to that of the surface of the sun, but this is different. this is over a larger area, and so that means you can start doing some mm. bulk chemistry and some bulk engineering, and that's that's a little bit more you know that's more processing stuff that's getting getting really interesting so yeah, anyway, some fascinating stuff now, uh folks, I'm about to play a track by uh, Lucy rose who you may know it's an older one of her songs, but if you're interested in hearing her sing. We actually have one double pass to see her on Thursday, the 6th of June at the Northcote Social Club. If you want to ring up, um, your name would be left at the door. It's uh, doors open from 730 and um, you'll have to call me in the studio because there's no one out there to answer the phones today, so I'll pick it up. Um, I will only pick up the one that wins. Uh, so if you don't hear from me straight away, uh, give up after a minute. Sorry about that, folks. It's uh, Sunday. So uh, give us a call now. We're going to take a break for some music.
2: Subscribers only?
0: Always subscribers only. Um, What's we the number? The, uh, well, they'll know. Okay. Subscribers know. We'll be back in just a minute, folks, with some more science for you. Three. She's go. Uh, welcome back, everybody. It's Einstein the Go Go. We just nodded off there for a second. Sorry, we uh, took a couple of seconds. To Distracted
1: back, but... by a fantastic conversation uh, well, about I, was,
0: I was on the phone talking to one of yeah. our listeners. It was great. You know, we were talking about the the track we just played, and then we just got index ray lasers and yeah. yeah. Anyway.
3: We laughed, we cried. It was better than the house. <laughs> <railcast.
0: laughs> yeah, it was all good. Uh, now, Doctor Ailey is going to just educate us for a little while about um, some I don't know rain stuff. Yeah? Stuff. Rain yeah. stuff.
2: What's yeah. happening with rain? We well, had some. We did, which was fantastic because we really, 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 really needed it. Um, How good is rain? Yeah, rain is fantastic. Well, I like rain.
1: Um, and look, you know, if we, if we think about climate change and the future, you know, the, the, the word on the street, anyway, is that we're going to get a lot more of the extreme variety of rainfall.
0: Right. Is that wetter than normal rain?
1: Well, yeah, wetter than normal rain. How, do, how does one know. define wetter than normal when you rain? you say
0: extreme virginia. Well, that's
1: exactly what I was going to say. So, yeah, first, first question is what do we mean by extreme rainfall? And here we're really talking about um, what we would call those events that happen with weather systems that just dump a lot of rainfall. So when we get a, a cyclone through that might drop, you know, 50 mils of rain maybe it'll drop 60 mils of rain. Or if we get thunderstorms happening, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, How often this occurs and, and the amount of rain falling with it is expected to increase. So why is this? This is the big question because you hear it a lot and you hear, oh, you know, the you know, rainfall will increase well, rainfall, particularly extreme rainfall will increase with climate change. So I, you know, some of the listeners might have heard before that this idea that, that the atmosphere can and I'm gonna use inverted quotes which none of the listeners can see, but hold more water, mm. right? Mm. So this is this is the idea that, that, that people often say and it's it's a little bit it's not quite right actually. Because when we think about why a warmer atmosphere can can hold more water does does anybody in here know why a warmer warmer air might might hold more so to speak
0: well, well only only there would be more evaporation from the oceans so yeah. there's a there's a pump
1: yeah exactly yeah yeah so that's exactly it basically it's all about kinetic energy how right. fast the water molecules move right so basically when we have warmer temperatures um and warmer bits of water <laughs> yep. those those molecules are moving faster they can they can basically break away from the liquid water and yep. turn into a gas form in other words they can evaporate yep. a lot more readily so it's not that the warmer air can actually hold more it's just that there's more energetics in the system, I mm. suppose, that mean mm. that more water can well, ev- evaporate.
3: There's an equilibrium between the liquid water and the vapour water. That's right. Which is very sensitive to temperature. temperature.
1: Exactly. And so what ends up happening is as you get warmer, you'll get more evaporating. You'll also eventually reach an equilibrium, but the amount it, that can evaporate will, will increase, right? Mm. So... Um, what ends up happening, yeah, and in, in atmospheric science we, we kind of call this the, the clausius clapeyron relationship, I use it in chemistry as well. Right? So in that sense what we say is that uh, it's around 6 to 7% increase in the amount of water vapour that the air can hold for every degree. Okay? Yeah. So yeah. for every degree of, of warming, of global warming, these are the estimates, the air can hold around 6 to 7%, 7% is usually the number, more water vapour. So that kind of makes sense and you go okay fantastic is that bad like what does well, that mean <laughs> yeah exactly but that's is that the thing, a lot right it's well 7%. yeah <laughs> well seven percent that's that's quite a lot i mean if you translate that directly to rainfall on the ground which is what i'm going to say you shouldn't do <laughs> mm. um you know if we get a hundred mil event that means it's a hundred and seven mil event right and so that that can make a little bit of a difference particularly when you're talking about thresholds for flooding and, and stuff like that but that's the thing it's not that simple Okay, because when we think about um, how things might actually change in terms of what we've seen in observations and what we might expect, uh, you know, what our computer models tell us, our climate models tell us might happen in the future. If we look around the globe, we actually see quite different changes. Mm. And broadly speaking, across the globe in most locations, we see an increase but not necessarily of that 6 to 7%. In some areas of the globe, it is 6 to 7%. In other areas of the globe, particularly around the tropics, some estimates have put it up to 14%. Wow,
0: that's a lot.
1: Yeah, that's a lot. That's a big mm. increase. And in other areas, it's as low as kind of 3 or 4%, and in some places, it's even a decrease. Mm. So in that sense, what the climate models are telling us and what the observations are telling us are a little bit different to what we expect from theory. So the question is why is that right and when we think about that we have to think about the fundamentals of what causes rainfall in the first place okay so it's not just moisture right just because we have more moisture in the air doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to fall as rain in some instances it will
3: but other times it can just be really humid
1: that's right exactly right exactly right so yeah the air can hold more that's right so the air can hold more so to speak but it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to fall as rain. So, what are like if you think about the the fundamental ingredients that we need to get rainfall in the first place? What happens to get rain? I'm going to take you back to like you mm. know grade five hydrological cycle here. So, you guys tell me what what needs to happen to get rain?
0: To get Is that rain, like the life of a drop. <laughs>
2: Oh yeah, kind of. Well, I think yeah. so you
0: so so you you warm up the ocean in some way. Yeah. you get evaporation. Yep. That, that water heads up. Yep. it eventually hits the colder areas of of the atmosphere. Oh, that, <laughs> that, that condenses into a well, droplet, no, no, which no. is too heavy and no. it falls. Am I, I right?
3: Very yeah. physicist of you, but you missed the part. You need nucleation. You have to nucleate drops. You are
1: both right. And
3: and (laughs) that depends on the number of particles in the atmosphere. Because if air pollution puts more particles in, you can have heaps of nucleation, but then you don't get rain.
1: Well, why don't you get rain, though?
3: Well, because each nucleation site sucks up some water. But you need a critical amount of water for it to fall out of the sky right. and you get it's lots of tiny drops but
1: yeah. they're too light that's right exactly so all of these things you both get gold stars this is fantastic so and i love this you know <laughs> can we explain, perspective and can chemistry we explain perspective.
0: nucleation to people because we just <laughs> no, lost exactly, half the audience exactly
1: so basically the fundamentals of what you need for, for rain or precipitation right we need moisture okay we know that that's increasing and if you actually look at that component which in atmospheric science we call the mm. thermodynamic component that is you know, broad brush increasing exactly the same all over the globe at this yep. six to seven percent because that's that's fundamental. You know that aspect, but we all know, also need a rain. Here, this is this is from Shane's physicist perspective to to get that right that that uh, water vapor yep. into the air that lift right. So we need some sort of mechanism to get it up there because as it as it goes up in the air, the atmosphere cools as we go up, it cools, it condenses, right? It's to condense onto something, which is the nucleation. In other words, we need tiny little particles for the water to condense onto. If there's no if there's nothing, it won't condense. And we actually have that in the atmosphere, which is amazing, called supercooled liquid water. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So particularly around areas of the southern ocean, um, in some cases there's not enough of these nuclei to condense onto, and we get this water that is actually below freezing but it won't freeze because there's nothing so, for so can
0: i ask you a question on that note yeah. what's fog
1: What's fog? Yeah. Well, fog is, is condensed onto onto tiny little...
0: And yeah, why isn't but... it falling?
1: Well, exactly, because yeah. it's not heavy enough. So, so it's, what just, ends up so it's happening... just too
0: small? That's or it... right, yeah.
1: exactly. So what ends up happening with rainfall in clouds, the way you get rain is that uh, these droplets basically smash together, yep. okay? And okay. they grow bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger and bigger. Eventually, they get heavy enough that they can overcome gravity mm. and they can fall to the surface, okay? Mm. So all of these aspects, um, you know, and all that stuff to do with, you know, how big they are, the shape of them in terms of if it's ice and not rain. If you get a nice little ice crystal that's a nice long kind of stick-like thing that's going to fall a lot easier than a traditional looking snowflake right which is going to fall a lot more gently so the fall speed for example of these of these droplets we call this the microphysics right so the microphysics of how clouds work and how rain works is really important so there's kind of these three aspects there's how much water the atmosphere can hold there's these lifting mechanisms so the lifting mechanisms are things like as simple as a cold front, for example, is okay. a lifting yep. mechanism. A cyclone is a lifting mechanism, all these kind of weather events, even just a little thunderstorm, right? And then the microphysics as well, which I is love,
3: this... I love that term, microphysics.
1: Yeah, well, the microphysics of the clouds, right? So this is all those little aspects of, of how the... Because, I mean, way up in the top of the atmosphere, it's all ice, right? It's too mm. cold. Yeah. So how those, those form, how water droplets smash together, the fall speed all affect extreme rainfall at the surface Mm. and so the idea is what aspect of that changes yes we're getting more water but if you don't have those systems those weather systems coming through you're not going to get an increase in extreme rainfall you're going to get a decrease because we might have the water there but there's nothing to help it fall out of the sky right there's Mm. nothing to get it up there to condense to form clouds to fall out of the sky Mm. so um, generally those areas where we are expecting rainfall to decrease in the subtrop are in the subtropics um, particularly over the ocean there's this kind of hypothesis that um, the wet get wetter and the dry get drier um, mm. with climate change but that's not entirely true and kind of only really works over the ocean to be honest at least that's what our best evidence tells us at the moment over land it gets a lot more complicated because of things like mountains yep. so when we have air moving over mountains we automatically get uh, air pushed up, and I mean, so that's that's what yeah. cools. You know? and, a, and
0: a change in pressure.
1: Absolutely, change mm-hmm. in pressure and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's some really interesting studies going on about well, how does that change? But if you get a change in the wind direction because the whole circulation is shifting, that could change too. You because know,
3: because on one of the mountain ranges in, in Russia, there because of the air hitting the mountain they're getting more snow in one spot that they didn't before
1: that's right exactly so you know that might be a case where it increases at a higher rate purely because of what we call the atmospheric dynamics it's got nothing to do with the amount of water vapor you know that can hold Um, but the other side of the mountain might be getting a lot less Mm -hmm. and so all these things basically it's just really complex and we don't quite understand it and and the most interesting part of all this for me is in the tropics Mm -hmm. right because the tropics is the area that's actually showing from our modeling and from our observations this change in extreme rainfall that's actually way higher than we would expect from that theory that doesn't sound good no well it's 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 kind of not but um in that sense they're getting kind of 10 to 14 percent per degree change in rainfall extreme rainfall per degree celsius rather than the kind of seven percent and so the question is around that well you know why Mm, (laughs) what's going on there might be something to do with the microphysics which we that's the hardest part to understand because you can you can kind of understand that these kind of things are really difficult to measure basically we have to fly Planes through, and and there's been been a lot of campaigns over the last ten years trying to understand this, but it's it's really difficult science because you're talking about you know changes on the microphysical level um, that we need to try and measure and understand, and then not only that, how we how we put that into our climate models. I mean, the way that climate models work at the moment is that they kind of break up the globe into these little boxes and these little boxes might be 100 by 100 kilometers because that's all our computing power yeah Yeah, that's all our computing power allows for but then Mm. if you're trying to represent these processes in the climate models and you think about a thunderstorm well that might be only 10 kilometers wide and 10 kilometers high Mm. Um, that's really difficult to represent so we have to make all sorts of assumptions and and kind of um, estimations we call them parameterizations in the model to try and model that Um, and that's that's a really difficult thing to do so that's a, mm. a big unknown and mm. yeah at the moment one of the thoughts is that the atmosphere particularly in the tropics is getting a bit less stable mm. and so when we have an unstable atmosphere you think about those thunderstorm days right so that means that the what we call the vertical velocity so basically upward winds updrafts in in, in uh, not cyclones sorry in uh, thunderstorms might get a bit faster and so that Can kind of invigorate that extreme rainfall, so that might be one reason Hmm. why uh, that extreme rainfall's changing at a faster rate than we might expect from basic theory. Yeah, complicated Um, problem. But it is—it's really complex, Hmm. super complex. And um, this is this is one of the difficulties in in predicting what's going to happen into the future is that we kind of know one part of the puzzle, not the rest. But the other parts of the puzzle, well, we know some bits. Yeah. you know, But they're still not quite revealing themselves sure. yet. There's still a lot more work to be done to try and understand that. So I suppose the point is here we, we, we are very confident that extreme rainfall will increase, but by how much yeah. and, where and where exactly. Yeah. And that that matters because people want to know exactly yeah. what's changing in their neck of the woods, yeah. right? We want to know what's happening in Melbourne. Yep. And the reality is at the moment that that's very difficult to tell because we don't know how, as we call it, the dynamics, how the weather systems actually work actually yeah, going to change yeah. well wow. and that's such a big part of the equation
0: complicated stuff it is well sure dr is. ailey thank you for that i'm not i'm not sure i feel more comfortable after that so <laughs> but i'm, I'm you know, more aware
1: yeah well look <laughs> i mean look take home extreme rainfall will increase but by how yeah. much and where is yeah. is the big question yeah. so
0: be alert and alarmed
1: well uh, yeah maybe <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> all right folks we're going to take a short break for some station announcements and we'll be back in just a few minutes 3 triple R now welcome back everybody you are listening to Einstein the Gago on 3 Triple R. believe it or not team I did some work this week Wow. I look some stuff up. Never. I know. It's rare, <laughs> um, but it does happen on occasion.
2: Tell us a story, Dr. Shane.
0: Well, I wanted to talk about something. that was a term I heard during the week, and you know me. When I hear a new term in science, my ears prick up if I haven't heard it. This one's called geomagnetic secular variation. It just okay. sounded cool.
2: Um. <laughs> geomagnetic secular variation. Yeah.
0: So, so is there an alternative? Is there a geomagnetic
3: religious, religious variation?
2: Say. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Do you know, this sounds bad, but I'll tell you something very funny has been happening to me today, and I feel someone's hacked me or something. But. On my Spotify account, when I listen to music at the moment, I get to play one song from any playlist I have, and then after that song's finished, it starts playing me religiously inspired music. And I cannot stop this happening. <laughs> I'm going to have to email Spotify and say, what the hell is going on? Something's it going
1: just, wrong with your algorithm. Yeah,
0: it just comes out of my playlist and starts playing me something from Hillsong or something. It's freaking me out. It's
1: because it's Sunday. That's
0: anyway, yeah. It hasn't happened to me before, <laughs> but I'm, I, I feel like I'm being watched. Anyway. Um, no geomagnetic secular variation. So the two, you know, geomagnetic, uh, you know, geo meaning Earth, you know, magnetic meaning magnetic, magnetic. <laughs> <laughs> secular meaning long term, you know, over years, etc., and variation meaning change. So we're talking about changes to the Earth's magnetic field. Okay, geomagnetic secular variation yep. sounds much, much better. better. Um, but yeah these are changes that occur over you know year scales or 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 longer they, they've been known for a long time actually so um the first of the real measurements of these were done around 1634 ish so you know over 400 years ago and they're, they're pretty substantial and they're actually they're due to changes in the interior of the earth which we know um there are more rapid changes that occur as well but these are usually due to different things so um Ailey, you'd be aware, for example, the ionosphere is, you know, a region of charged particles and so forth, and and that creates magnetic fields as well. So that changes fairly radically. And then there's the magnetosphere, which is actually the sort of region around the Earth where you have uh, magnetic field as well and that has its own sort of weather this and so forth why
1: and we have an atmosphere, atmosphere near Earth, Earth, right?
0: Earth yeah and so but these these are, these have more rapid changes to them because they're also due to space weather as well so what's coming from the sun they get affected by that they're not just due to what's inside the Earth and so that's a little bit different and uh, if you think about the longer-term stuff, um, we really want to be looking at not this sort of you know stuff you might measure with satellites from day to day, but stuff that needs to be measured over hundreds of years. Now it's kind of cool actually that we can do this because we it, it's pretty easy to me- measure magnetic fields. You know, like you can you know get a, a small piece of um, iron material, chuck it in, chuck it on a leaf in a in a pond, and off you go. You start to measure magnetic fields. It's it's pretty easy and we we measure actually two types of magnetic fields primarily when we're on earth so one is the sort of what we'd call the, the sort of the dipole or the polar part of the the magnetic field and that's that's the bit that if you if you imagine and this is not true but imagine there's a giant north south magnet in the middle of the earth when you think of the magnetic north and south you get on your compass that's kind of what you're measuring you're measuring that part then there's also the non-polar parts so this is all the other bits of ma- magnetic field due to due the things like what the earth's made of mountains so forth you're also seeing some of that so it's quite complicated in, in essence but you can measure all these things relatively easy um, the direction of the magnetic field and its intensity changes over time. So this is one of the interesting things about the Earth, is that not only does its direction change, but its intensity changes. And in fact, at the moment, the intensity of our field is dropping by about 6.3% every every 100 years or so. And if you, sort of, if you think about that, um so our magnetic field now is about half of what it was two cent two two millennia ago so two thousand years ago and if you sort of if you do the math in your head which i don't want to do but if you do it um about 1600 years from now our field if it kept dropping at that rate would go to zero now that probably won't it's very unlikely that will happen but that's sort of that's the way it's sort of tracking and that, that won't actually occur because of some of the peculiarities of the field now the field of course depends what you measure depends very much on where you are and there's this very, very interesting peculiarity with our field because as everyone knows the earth spins on an axis and that axis has a slight tilt to to the vertical but the magnetic field is not on that same axis it's about 11 degrees off and it's quite funny because astronomers and amateur astronomers know this well because when they set up their telescopes in their backyard you first of all align them with sort of a magnet uh, with a magnetic field but then you, if you want to track the stars, you track the stars based on the rotation of the Earth, and that's a different axis. That's eleven, eleven sort of degrees off.
1: Same with uh, old school bushwalking navigation. Yeah, as well.
0: yeah, you've got to do this a little bit differently. So it's um, you know it's not quite what you would expect. Now it's funny because even before we had instrumentation to measure magnetic fields, we were still able to do it. And this is where we look at the paleomagnetic record. So we can look at, you know, materials that record magnetic field directions, um, you yeah. know, sometimes from volcanoes and so forth, they record them in the rock. So they get aligned; these little magnets get aligned when the rock is molten, and then it sort of freezes the information in. And you can look back, like, literally hundreds of thousands of years or more um, at this sort of record and see what was going on. Now, if we go back to what produces the magnetic field we see, it's quite interesting because it would be great if we just had this giant bar magnet in the middle of the Earth. But there's an inherent problem there. If you take a normal iron ferrite magnet, you take a normal magnet, and you heat it up to the temperatures that you see at the center of the Earth, guess what? It stops being a magnet. That's one of the problems. So the idea of this big giant magnet in the in the center of there just doesn't fly because the temperatures there are too hot for the magnetism to actually work. I always thought it yeah, and then could it be a horseshoe magnet. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> horseshoe, pretty bad too. Uh yeah. But yeah, it could be it could be a whole lot of horseshoes all over the place. But um Instead, what you have is a scenario where there's another way to make a magnetic field, and that is to have a current of electricity sort of going around the circle, and that will cause a magnetic field to run through that circle. And so what we think, instead of having this big bar magnet, is you have all these circulating currents of electricity or electrical material uh under the earth's surface and they're running they're very hot it doesn't matter how hot they are as long as they're electrical they still work and that gives us this magical you know magnetic field so and you find of course that circulation is a bit patchy so it's not the same everywhere and you can imagine over time that circulation changing which is the reason why our magnetic fields wandering about if we just had this solid bar magnet it wouldn't change. Mm. But the circulation means that it changes quite significantly. So that's kind of cool that we know that. Um, It also means that it's hard to account for all the fields across the earth simply because in different locations you have different circulations. So one way to think, the way the way I like to think about this is if you wanted to mimic the the earth's magnetic field, like in a in a little experiment, you'd take one big bar magnet, that'd take care of eighty or ninety percent of what we see. And then I'd give you about another twenty seven little bar magnets and you just little distribute them around the earth in various places to make up for the little variations. So it's complicated, but you know, overall You know most of it's relatively simple so that's kind of cool the interesting thing is is then you say well okay where else do we see these sorts of variations and the answer is we haven't seen these anywhere else in the solar system because of a few reasons and the first place i like to look of course everyone gets excited about mars but for me venus is the thing because venus is about the same size as the earth and you think okay does venus have a magnetic field and the answer is no And to understand that, you've got to go back to why it works on Earth. The reason this stuff is moving around under the Earth's surface is because the Earth is rotating once a day, right? And that motion of rotation of the Earth keeps things moving inside the Earth as well. So you say, okay, well, what's happening on Venus? Well, the problem is with Venus is one Venetian day is 234 of our days. So it's moving so slowly that the subsurface material is not moving fast enough to create a magnetic field. Hence, Venus doesn't have a magnetic field. So that's kind of sad, if you ask me, but you know. Mm. Anyway, fortunately, Venus still has an atmosphere, which is curious. Mars, on the other hand, is smaller than Earth, but its day is very similar to the Earth day. It's only off by a few hours. However, for whatever reason, uh, Mars's magnetic field has collapsed and this is one of the reasons why Mars has almost no atmosphere because the charged particles from the Sun have been slowly blowing the atmosphere off because there's nothing to stop them hitting the atmosphere and the Martian, the Martian magnetic fields are curious ones like why did it go away we don't actually know there's some theories around subsurface water all sorts of other things that may have caused it and so we really don't know and we haven't seen magnetic fields anywhere else now remember if you want to see this geomagnetic um, secular variations this is long-term changes in magnetic fields you need to have been taking measurements for a long time and so if we think of something like Pluto well we just flew by a couple of years ago we took some measurements that's it we don't have 40 or 50 years of measurements but there is a planet that we have long-term measurements for and that's Jupiter so we've been sending stuff to Jupiter since the pioneer craft almost 40 years ago measuring the magnetic fields now, Jupiter's particularly hard to look at because its magnetic field as a planet is immense. It is so huge. However, um, the Juno craft that's there at the moment has been taking a lot of data on ma- magnetic fields, adding those to the Pioneer 1 and 2 craft and the Ulysses craft, which was the one that we sent to the sun to, to do measurements, but to get to the sun, we went around Jupiter as a slingshot to speed up. We've added all of that data together. And, and this, over the last week in Nature Astronomy, Uh, There's been a publication to indicate that those same sorts of year-in variations in magnetic field are now being seen in Jupiter as well, which is really, really cool. tells us a lot about how these fields operate. Remembering, too, that Jupiter's a gas giant. Mm. So the things that are affecting the field here are atmospheric changes. So it's the gases that are moving around that are changing the field and probably a lot of it creating the field. And that's something that, you know, we don't see on Earth, of course, but it's something that on this really big planet we're seeing these variations in field, which is really curious, and we don't see that anywhere else in the solar system, at least that we know of.
1: But, I mean, in terms of Earth, you know, if you look under the surface, there is a lot of (coughs) liquid. It's not...
0: Yeah, like, yeah, you know, it's,
1: it's it's not a gas, obviously, it's, it's, but it's, but it's, it's hot,
0: a, like a high density gas. That's yeah, right, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah.
1: So, I mean. There, there are some similarities in the sense yeah. that that's that's why we've got stuff moving yeah. under the Earth's surface yeah. and it can create this. And in fields. a way,
0: this is it's a great way. You you look at Jupiter, you see this external stuff, mm. and it kind of tells us our theories, our theories, because we can't measure it, of what's happening underneath the surface of the Earth is probably true. So it's kind of nice that we've gone all the way out to Jupiter yeah. to reconfirm that our understanding of Earth dynamics is is yep. most likely correct Physics which i think is really everywhere. really fascinating so we're going to have to hand over to the team from Edit. uh dr ailey dr crystal dr ray thanks so much it was thank you <coughs> i'm dr shane science is everywhere folks we're going to give you a whole lot more of it next week but until uh, that time enjoy your sunday have a great week and please listen in to the fabulous team of matt Stedman and cameron smith on Edit. thanks for listening to triple r